Good morning, church. I was, uh, was encouraged by Stan's prayer just to be reminded that this is what we set aside these two hours for every, every Sunday. This is, the, this is the one time of the week that we set aside for us to all gather together to collectively set our affections on the Lord. And you heard the humility in that prayer and that there's, there's nothing we can do this morning to, to conjure up right to worship. Uh, but we, we gather as a humble people, um, expecting to be led by the Spirit to glorify the Lord. So welcome to that gathering this morning. The last time I preached, which was a few months ago, I commented that we had been swimming in the deep end of Romans. And I may have been a little premature, because if that was true, then I think we have been swimming in the Mediterranean recently, or the middle of the Pacific, or the middle of the Atlantic in Romans 8 and 9. I hope it's been encouraging for you, and uh, have been able to work through and work out some of those things that we have heard uh, from Paul. Uh, but today we take a break, as you would expect, seeing me up here. And Lord willing, when Lonnie returns from vacation next week, we'll pick back up with Romans 9. I have, I've told you before about the, the difficulty I have found. It just gave away my cover. I've told you before about the difficulty I have found in selecting a text to preach on these, these spot opportunities. You got 66 books, pick one. Right, and I, you know, I've been in, in the Psalms, in the Epistles, in the Gospels, in narrative, both Testaments. Uh, but it is challenging just to just to pick one. So what I have decided to do, Lord willing, is that as I have opportunity to preach, to preach through a book. That's what we do at Four Corners, and it will be much the same thing that we do every other week. It's just that it will be intermittent. It will be time between sermons. Uh, So that book, as you can see there, will be Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's only four chapters long, and uh, it it lends itself to this format of intermittent attention. I would have loved to have done a a Deuteronomy or an Isaiah, but I think at that pace that would not have served us well. So four chapters feels good for us, and uh, we've had some exposure to Philippians over the last several years. Uh, a few years ago, um, our men walked through Philippians in a men's Bible study. And then most recently, uh, Lonnie preached through Philippians 2, 5 through 11, in December of 2019, for our Advent study. And then most recently, uh, Will Daney actually preached a sermon on Philippians 4 earlier this year. So that's been our exposure to Philippians. But uh, however many years and however many sermons it takes at this pace, uh, when I uh, come to preach, Lord willing, uh, Philippians will be the well that uh, we go to. Uh, so today, you can go ahead and turn to uh, chapter 1, of course, and we'll be in verses 1 through 6. Philippians 1, 1 through 6. We're not quite ready to read, but you go ahead and mark your place. If you, if you pick up a commentary on virtually any New Testament letter, one of the things you will find in the introduction is a discussion on the occasion of the letter. That simply means uh, the reason that the author wrote the letter. 
And in some, in some epistles, it's, it's quite easy to reconstruct the occasion. Galatians, for example, is pretty clear. Paul's writing because there's a big problem with, with, with bad theology. And uh, it, it's, it's important for us to think through the occasion of the letter because it situates us in the, the reason the author's writing, the, the context that the recipients would have been hearing for the first time. And that's where the, the original meaning is in. So as it regards Philippians, and we think about the occasion of the letter, Paul writes in response to a gift. He is in prison, or house arrest more likely, uh, probably in Rome, and his friends in Philippi have sent him a gift of support, and this letter is a response to that gift. Now, it would not be true to classify Philippians, though, as a thank you note, we write thank you notes, right, after you get married, or you have a party, a shower, dear aunt so-and-so, thank you for the toaster, it makes great toast, you know, I think of you every time I make toast, right, love, Trey, right? That's not what Paul is doing. He, he does thank the Philippians, and he does it in his own unique way, and he actually waits to the end of the letter before he gets close to a thank you. Uh, but this is not a mere thank you note. As he responds to this gift, he takes the opportunity to, to deal and speak to several issues in the church and to encourage his old friends in Philippi. So, in fact, the themes in Philippians run much deeper than if you were to be expecting a mere thank you note. Everything in Philippians is built on the centrality of Christ and the foundation of the gospel. In fact, the words, the two nouns, Christ and gospel, appear with more frequency in Philippians relative to the length than they do any of, other, any of Paul's other letters. And then on those foundations of Christ and gospel, you get several ideas, fellowship, partnership in the gospel, unity among Christians, joy, focus on the advancement of the gospel, future hope in present circumstances, serving others. All of these are themes built on Christ and the gospel in Philippians. So I give you that just to say this is no mere thank you note. I want to read... Uh, a quote from Gordon Fee. He's one of the, written one of the, the best commentaries on Philippians. This is what he writes at the end of his introduction to the book. Our letter invites us into the advance of the gospel, the good news about Christ and the Spirit. It points us to Christ both now and forever. Christ is the gospel. Christ is Savior and Lord. Thus, Christ is our life. Christ is our way of life. Christ is our future. Christ is our joy. To live is Christ. To die is gain. And all to the glory of our God and Father. Amen. That is what we get as we embark into Philippians. It will be an intermittent journey, but I pray that the Lord will speak nonetheless. So, you can stand and let's read the first six verses of Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, 
with the overseers and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can have a seat. Let's pray that the Lord would add to the hearing of the word and the preaching of the word our understanding of it. God, thank you for this gift of this letter. It was written to close friends thousands of years ago and still comes to bear on us today because it was penned under the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We pray this morning as we step into this relationship between partners in the gospel, we might hear what you have to say to us. Would you free us from distraction and focus our minds and our pens in our hands and our hearts on your word. Amen. Well, the title of the sermon is Partners in the Gospel. And as Paul writes to his partners, he begins with a a warm greeting. These are our three points. He begins with a warm greeting. He speaks of his joyful gratitude and he offers to the Philippians sure confidence. He begins, as you would expect with any letter, with warm greetings and how most of Paul's letters and most first century correspondence would begin with identifying the author, identifying the recipients, and a salutation or a greeting. So let us run through those. Of course, we hear from Paul. This is our our good friend. We need no introduction to him. We have been walking with him very closely for the last year and a half in Romans As I mentioned, he's writing from prison, or or more accurately, uh, house arrest. Uh, There is some debate as to where he is writing from. It is most likely Rome, probably Rome. Just to situate this in the context of the New Testament, if you think about the book of Acts, everything in Acts has already happened as Paul is writing Philippians. So all of his missionary journeys... The, the insane circumstances that take him from being arrested in Jerusalem, this, this crazy boat voyage across the Mediterranean, shipwrecked snakes, and all these crazy things that happen, ends in Rome, and he is there in, under house arrest. And that's how Acts ends. Paul is in Rome awaiting something. He does not know. And in that time is when he writes the book of, it writes this letter to Philippians. His friend And ministry partner Timothy is with him. It was common for Paul to acknowledge when he had companions with him. He does so in over half of his letters. That doesn't indicate that Timothy was writing. Uh, The whole book is written in the first person, I, Paul. And he refers to Timothy in the third person in chapter 2. So we don't need to think of Timothy as authoring uh, with Paul. uh, Simply that Paul wants to say, look, Uh, Timothy was well-respected in Philippi. He was with Paul in Acts 16 uh, when he first came to, when Paul first came to Philippi. He simply wants to say, look, your your friend, my friend, Timothy, is with me here. He's well in prison. 
Normally, after introducing himself, Paul will mention his status as an apostle. And, and many times that's necessary for him to do for the sake of his, his communication, like in, in Galatia or, or the uh, letter to the Galatians or to the Corinthians, it was necessary for him to, to claim his apostolic authority to rightly communicate what he needed to say. But here, as he writes to his, his good friends, there's no need for Paul to throw around his apostolic weight. So he foregoes the, the, self, the, the title of apostle and refers to himself as another status, servant of Christ Jesus. This is one that applies to both him and Timothy. He says, I, I am one whose, whose posture before God is, is of service and humility. Of course, by the nature of the title, he is writing to the Christians in Philippi. Those whose, whose spiritual location is in Christ Jesus, whose physical location is in Philippi. Acts tells us that Philippi was a leading city in the region of Macedonia. It was founded by the Greeks. By this time, it had become under Roman control, and it had been stocked several years before this with expats from the Roman military. So you can imagine that whatever was happening in Philippi, it was steeped. In, in pagan idolatry, in whatever were the prevailing social customs of the time, Philippi was steeped in that. Yet, the gospel had taken root. That's what Stan read for us this morning. Those, I think, uh, 29 verses in Acts 16 was the entry of the gospel into Philippi. So for now, let us just recognize that as Paul writes to these folks, he is writing primarily to Gentile Christians. And as he addresses them, he does something unique. He, he addresses uh, specifically the overseers and the deacons. Now, th- this is not normal for Paul to address a particular group in the church. So it leads commentators love to debate about these things. Why does he mention them? Did they need to be called out for some reason? Did they organize the gift that was sent to him? He's getting their attention. What's going on? Frankly, we don't know. We don't know why Paul mentions them specifically, but it is helpful for us. It's helpful for us that he mentions these men because it shows that these roles of church government were actually established quite early in the life of the church. It's almost universally recognized that Paul wrote Philippians, and we even more or less agree down to a few years of the date when he wrote it. So what that tells us is very early on in the church, just a few decades after, after the church began, there's already an understanding of these offices in the church, overseers and deacons. So I actually want to spend a few minutes talking about these offices. Now, just to be clear, this is not what Paul is doing. In no way, shape, or form is he giving an exposition on what overseers and deacons are. But it is not often that we come across these terms so explicitly in our text. In fact, the last time I can remember without having looked would have been when Lonnie preached through Titus chapter 2, which I believe was 2016, was the last specific reference we had in a Sunday morning on uh, the, the leadership of the church. So I just want to spend a few minutes there, press pause on the flow of the letter, because it's healthy for us to be reminded of these things. So first he greets the overseers. 
It's an uncommon word, but we understand it to mean essentially the same thing as shepherd or pastor or elder. He uses here the word overseer. If you go to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, calls them elders, but this is what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. So there in that text, we have elder equals overseer equals caring for the church of God. This is the same word that Paul will use in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 2 to describe the office for which he there gives qualifications for overseer. And then there's another important reference to this office in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 2. Peter uses different words. He doesn't use the word overseer. He actually uses the word shepherd and elder, but he gives a similar task. This is what Peter writes, 1 Peter 5, 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So I select those texts to tell you this. Whether the word in the New Testament is the word for overseer or elder or shepherd, those are three distinct words, or pastor, which is the same thing as shepherd, the point is the task is the same. Pay attention to the flock and care for the church. Care for both the corporate direction and vision of the church overall and care for individuals, their faith their sanctification, their souls. So that's what we believe overseers slash elders slash, over, slash, de- uh, slash elders slash pastors are at four corners. Elders are all overseers, pastors, and shepherds. So yes, Lonnie is the one you see up here bringing the word each week. And yes, Lonnie and I are the, the two that are, are paid Full time, so that we can devote our attention to the care of the church. But Four Corners has five pastors because it currently has five elders, all of which are tasked with overseeing the flock, caring for God's people. Those are the overseers Paul addresses. And he also addresses the deacons. Now, we have less references to deacons in the New Testament than we do elders. In fact, the only other specific reference to the the man or the office of deacon is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where he will give qualifications for that role. But while we don't have an abundance of references to the office, the Greek word is is quite common, and it simply means servant. It's one who works in service to another is a deacon. That's why many will understand uh, what we see in Acts chapter 6 with uh, with the apostles calling certain men to serve uh, serve the tables. Many will see that as a a kind of proto-deacon. It doesn't refer to them as deacons, but that's what we understand their role to be. That even then, when the church in Acts 6 was perhaps weeks old at the time, there was a need for men to be specifically called to serve practical needs in the church so that the elders could carry on with the ministry of the word and the care for God's people. So that's how we understand deacons today, to oversee 
practical needs of the church. There is oversight in the role of deacon. They're overseeing practical needs of the church so that the elders might carry on with the ministry of the word and the care for the church. And that's, that's how our deacons function at Four Corners, whether that's benevolence or, or overseeing our music or our finances or this building which the Lord has blessed us with, setting up the baptismal, you name it. These are the things that our deacons are overseeing. And they do a great job of it, by the way. So at its simplest, this is New Testament church government. We look at it 2,000 years on and, and see things at times as, as much more complicated in different denominations. But at Four Corners, this is how we are governed. There's, there's not much more complication past this, overseers and deacons. It may sound like that's a lot of authority to give to a small group of men. And on, on one hand, that's the point of a plurality. That's why there's more than one. Because when you have these men who are operating According to the qualifications set forth in Scripture, there's natural accountability there. But, but look at the text and notice something. Paul, Paul would have been a kind of authority figure to the Philippians. He'd been well respected. He planted the, he planted the church, and, and after all, he is an apostle. And he refers to himself in the fourth word of the letter as a servant of Christ Jesus. And in so doing, reminds the overseers and deacons that he addresses, you likewise are but a servant. There's no room for entitlement in this role. There is no place of prominence here. There is no special treatment. Stan prayed this morning that the Lord would humble the leadership of our church. Thank you for that prayer because that is needed. That it's part of the role. Particularly if Jesus is our chief shepherd, I speak to us as elders and those who are deacons. If Jesus is the one after whom we model our service, there is, there is no room for entitlement. There's no room for abuse of authority here. These men, Paul says, are not over the church in dignity or importance. They're with the church. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. So these are the offices that Paul greets. These are the things these men would have been doing in Philippi, working in care for and service to the church, only and always with humility. So let's press resume back on our letter. We move into Paul's familiar greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How he begins most of his letters. This was common. First century correspondence began with, with greetings to you. Well, the word grace and the word greetings sound fairly similar in the Greek. So Paul's employing a turn of phrase here to turn greetings into you, into grace to you, and then tacking on and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the one of the most memorable things, I, I, little nuggets that I ran across as I was reading for this, uh, this text was one writer who said, in the hands of Paul, everything turns to gospel. Even the hello. Even the hello turns to gospel in the hand of Paul. Greetings to you becomes grace to you. And that's how our letter begins. Warm greetings of grace and peace from Timothy and Paul to the church in Philippi. So before we move on, I just want to make a quick note about the nature, 
that we have these letters at all. You know, the fact that we have these letters in our Bibles should be an encouragement. Because on one level, every New Testament letter was written because there were problems in the church. You know, whether it was internal strife in Philippi or sin in Corinth or an underdeveloped church in Crete where Paul had left Titus, whether it was theological drift or theological abandonment, more, more accurately, in the churches in Galatia, there were problems in these churches that caused the letters to be written in the first place. And we can tend sometimes to think more highly than we ought of these churches. You know, their names were, were, were preserved in the, in the word of God that we have forever. But we should understand these folks were messed up. That's what these letters are telling us. So the encouragement to us then is, as we look around our church, and as we see ways that we fall short, both corporately we fall short as a whole, and as individuals we fall short and we cause problems and strife, our response to those things is not discouragement. It's not despair. It's not, I got to go find a new church because these folks just don't have it together. Our response when we see those things here is that we come from a long line of imperfect churches. There is a rich heritage of messed up churches. We would fit in quite well with the Philippians. Dare I say, we would fit in quite well with the Corinthians. But look how God has preserved his people. That's what these letters tell us. That a gathered body of Christians has always been imperfect and will always be imperfect. We are going to have problems, but that is not cause for despair because look how God has preserved his people. And then, every time we confess our sin, every time we encourage another brother or sister in the church, every time we we do the hard work of, of healing relational conflict, every time we point each other to Christ, we are engaging in the same kind of church building work that Paul was engaged in as he sat down to write to the Philippians. Not as an apostle, of course, but Paul's building a messed up church in Philippi, encouraging them. That's what you do every time you engage in these things with your brothers and sisters here. So just an encouragement on the fact that we have these epistles in the first place. Well, after a warm greeting, Paul explodes into a joyful gratitude. Verses three through five, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So he does burst into thanksgiving here, but what he's going to show us is that he's going to give us both his, his mode and his reason for gratitude. His mode will be in verses 3 and 4. His reason for gratitude will be in verse 5. And as we look at his mode of gratitude, there's five things he shows us. I'll I'll give them to you quickly, and then we'll walk through them each just so you can be prepared for them. So the five things his mode of gratitude shows us, verses 3 to 4, is that it is others-focused, God-directed, 
prayer expressed, all-encompassing, and joy-filled. It starts by being others expressed. He bursts into thanksgiving, but not quite for what you would expect. You, You might expect him to be thankful for the gift. After all, he's writing in response to that support they've given him. But in typical Paul fashion, he's not so much thankful for the material support as he is thankful for the people who sent it. Paul is a people person. Now you hear that and you might think extrovert. Was Paul an extrovert? I have no idea. Nobody knows. When I say people person, that's not what I mean. What I mean is that Paul's focus falls on other people. His main concern falls on others. That's why he'll say at the end of the letter, when he finally does get around to to thanking them, chapter 4, verse 17, he says, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So, yeah, he's grateful they supported him, but he is mainly grateful that they have participated in something that shows evidence of their having believed the gospel. He is mainly grateful that they are growing and continuing in the faith because that means credit for them. Even in his gratitude, he is trying to encourage them. His gratitude is others-focused. But it's also God-directed. The main phrase in verse 3 to 5, from which everything flows, is, I thank my God. See, Paul knows that you can be thankful for a thing itself, but to truly express gratitude, you need to be thankful to the one from whom it came. This is not novel. We all know this. Your husband or wife gives you a gift, so they give you a watch. You're grateful for the watch. You put the watch on, you love the watch, and you, just, you go off to start fiddling with all the knobs and the dials and connect it to your phone and whatnot. You're grateful for the watch. That's not gratitude because you haven't thanked your wife, your husband, right? Gratitude doesn't actually happen until you're grateful for the one from whom the thing came. That's how we express it. And Paul knows the gift, the material gift from the Philippians, the relationship itself he has with the Philippians, all come from the Lord. And by directing his gratitude to God, he is, he's, he's honoring the Lord. He is exalting God for being the one from whom this gift and the relationship come. So in order to be truly grateful, Paul is, Paul's gratitude is God-directed. And it's expressed in prayer. Look at verses three to four. Or in verse four, he says, In every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This is a consistent pattern for Paul. Over and over and over again, we see him being thankful for people, but then expressing that gratitude to God in prayer. What is gratitude if it's unexpressed? We teach our kids to say thank you not to feel thank you because we're grateful when we express our gratitude. And in in, in expressing it, particularly expressing gratefulness to God in prayer, it submits us to him. It humbles us. It reminds us of God's goodness. So Paul expresses his gratitude in prayer to God. So just a reminder, we're we're looking at Paul's mode of gratitude here. So far, it is others-focused, God-directed, prayer-expressed, and then it's all-encompassing. 
Notice how comprehensive is his prayer. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Those are different words in English, and even in the Greek, it's not the same word, but they do have the same root. So when you read it, it's this very obvious but slightly awkward repetition. It's even a little bit awkward in English. And not because Paul's a bad writer, but he's trying to impress upon his friends the, the depth and the consistency and the frequency with which he is engaged in prayer for all of his friends in Philippi. This is a deep relationship that has spanned many miles and many years. 